Welcome to Totally Fine with Tiffany Philippou, a podcast about those life-altering experiences that shape who we are today and those times when we were not totally fine. I'm your host, Tiffany Philippou, and I've written a memoir, Totally Fine and Other Lies I've Told Myself. Each episode, I'm joined by a guest who'll tell me their story about a time that they pretended to be totally fine. I know what it's like to pretend to be okay, and that's what my book is about. After my boyfriend Richard died by suicide, I spent most of my 20s pretending that this never happened. I know that it's not just what happens to us, but the stigma we feel and how we suppress it that's the real problem. So here's why we're having these conversations, to quiet the shame monster and to remind us that we're not alone. Oh no, single people can't have sex. And it's like, well, some single people have lost their homes because they lost their jobs and they've only got one income. No, you've written really beautifully about that feeling of losing time because of the pandemic. What what does it feel like to face up to that loss and that time that's lost? You know, there are no condolence cards directed at somebody who can't have a child that she dreams of or hasn't met the imagined partner that she hoped to meet. Today I'm joined by Nicholas Lawson. Nicola is a journalist, writer, public speaker and a self-described serial career changer. She's worked in news at The Guardian and at HuffPost and while at HuffPost, Nicola wrote a personal essay about being the only single person in her friendship group and that went viral. Nicola then went on to found one of what is one of my favourite newsletters, The Single Supplement, which is about the highs and lows of single life. Nicola writes that after being single for more than five years, I began to look around for articles written for and about single people that just didn't deal with dating. There wasn't much out there and it was frustrating. This feeling began to build and this spurred me to launch the newsletter, which I did in October 2019, coinciding with my 35th birthday. Nicola has since written plenty of widely read articles about the single experience and her newsletter has been featured in The Guardian, HuffPost and I really could go on and it has such a huge and loyal subscriber base, including me. Nicola is also a great friend of mine and always at the other end of a voice note as we both navigate what it's like sharing so much of our personal lives on the internet. I'm one of her biggest fans and I'm sure I'm the first person to open her newsletter each time it lands in my inbox and I'm so excited to have her on the show today. Thank you so much. Welcome to the show, Nicola. Oh my god, that's so nice. I'm just I'm just gonna play that back to myself when it comes out, just like when I need a, when I need a little boost. Um, no <laughs> pleasure. I honestly, I I get I get actively excited when I see your newsletters come into the inbox. Um, I love it so much, and I love your work. I think you might be one of the first people to read it actually, because you usually do a little heart thing, so I know you it. Or you or you send me a little email. I know, I know. I can't wait always. Um, And then speaking of your newsletter, because quite a long time has passed since you started it. So it was October 2019, you were 35 pre-pandemic, if we can cast our minds back to then. And the media landscape when talking about the single experience is very different to what it is now. How would you describe how it's changed since you launched the newsletter? Um, yeah, I mean, I like to think that I've had a hand in this. You have, <laughs> That's absolutely. No okay, sp- I would say spearheading, in fact, not just had a hand. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, everything out there was just, it was, it was just aimed at 
it was it just assumed that all single people are miserable and desperate all of the time or it was equating single with dating so there was no um there was no nuance which me and tiffany love nuance um there was nothing about just the daily life of single people it was mainly just yeah dating or how awful and terrible it is to be single um and that really didn't reflect my life but yeah things definitely have shifted um there are now um like refinery 29 have like a, a a column called the single files um which is great there are books lots quite a lot of books i've just contributed um to a book called unattached um which came out a few months ago and yeah it's definitely shifted and also i now get interviewed quite a lot and because um i know a lot of journalists and they follow me and obviously i sometimes you know rant a little bit about what I think is missing. I think some of them really have taken taken that on board because they contact me um, and ask me to comment on things like the cost of living. Um, and during the pandemic, I was asked to write quite a few pieces on the impact of living alone. Um, I'm also contacted to um, find case studies for people, even for like, um, oh my God, I've forgotten the name of it, but it's like Steph's Big Lunch or something. It's a Channel 4 thing. It's quite a big TV show. Um, and that wouldn't, that wasn't happening before at all. And so it feels really exciting. It feels like finally people are getting it. Um, and now it's actually much easier for me to find the recommended articles that I do at the end of the newsletter. So there were some months where I really struggled to find things to actually share because there was nothing out there that really fit with the ethos of the newsletter. And now I have loads of things. So that's a clear sign that it's obviously things are changing. And even in like TV shows and things, I think that there are more, um, I think people are sort of realizing that, that, you know, there's a lot more different experiences in life and we need to show, um, show that. So um, back in the day, like Fleabag, was so like oh my god it ends and it's not it doesn't end on a happy ending and people kind of shocked about that and really sad and I was like oh that's so good because that's real um that to me was like the perfect real life scene because it was kind of a weird relationship and it didn't it wasn't going to work out whereas a lot of people are like oh why didn't they end up together it would have been a better ending um, but now you see other TV shows um, where people are ending up single or just single throughout. And I'm here for it. Really, really like it. <laughs> Me too. And saying that, though, what would you say is still frustrating about the way single life is being talked about in the media? I think there's definitely still the idea that being single means literally automatically means dating. I actually did a call out for pitches uh, for people to write guest pieces for my newsletter. And I made clear in the call out that I, it was like, you know, I don't cover dating. And half of the responses were about dating. Um, half of the pictures I got. And it was funny because one of them said, oh, I must have must have misunderstood. I thought it was a newsletter for single people. And I was like, yeah, it is. But funnily enough, we don't talk about dating. It doesn't mean, um, you know, there's so much else to talk about. And I used to be like, what could I possibly talk about every week? But I've I've found stuff and there's so much out there um, that, yeah, I think is still not quite being covered. Um, there was a big thing in The Guardian, for example, just 
I think it was this probably this time last year and it was about the impact of, on single people um, during the pandemic and it almost the whole article was about sex um and it was just like oh no single people can't have sex and it's like well some single people have lost their homes because they lost their jobs and they've only got one income um so there's a hell of a lot more going on than what than sex <laughs> um and so yeah that's that's really frustrating for me especially when I'm not like interviewed because <laughs> then I could bring that kind of nuance and it's kind of kind of frustrating um and yeah it's just it's a lot of the stuff out there is is also just generally focused on um being single in relation to whether or not you have a partner so it's not just literally talking about the individual it's more like where you are in terms of whether or not you have somebody somebody or not um so a lot of it's about breakups um a lot of it's about how you know a period of being single made them feel better about getting into a relationship which I'm sure, I know it does um but there's still so much more in the middle bit when you're actually single <laughs> so um yeah and also I think people shy away from long term uh talking about people who are long term single because I think it makes them uncomfortable so <laughs> would you say there's still a stigma about being single particularly long term single yeah definitely definitely I mean I I um I think not that long ago a couple of years ago I met um, a friend for coffee and they were literally like I knew that they were long-term single and I was telling them about the newsletter and they were like I would never ever write about being single um like don't you worry about what your ex-boyfriends will think they'll your ex-boyfriends are going to know that you're still single um I was like oh no how terrible that they know I'm still single <laughs> um so yeah and that and then yeah there's just loads of um examples of you know things that people say to single people um and and even just the way we basically live in a coupled up world it's designed for couples um you know married people get tax breaks um there's just so much that's like designed for couples and you know it's so much more expensive to be single um so even things like you know my newsletter is called the single supplement which is obviously like a play on words because the single supplement is you know when you go on holiday and you have to pay extra if you want to go on your own so that's a (laughs) small example um but yeah I think that I think it's getting better definitely and I think the more we have these conversations and the more people talk about it but even with my newsletter I get a lot of emails and I get a lot of messages on social media but I don't always get a lot of shares on social so I don't get people saying oh my god I love this newsletter um and I've even had people being like I've joined my Facebook group no one can see that I've joined this you know there's this like embarrassment about it and yeah people have said you know they yeah they wouldn't be comfortable sharing on social that they read the single supplement (laughs) which is not great for when you're trying to like build an audience obviously um but yeah definitely there's still stigma um and there's still a lot of shame that people feel um and especially yeah I think if you're long-term single um yeah you're just seen as picky and um all those kind of things or you've got issues well yeah I mean what what is the most annoying thing that people can say to a single person well all single people um 
have different things that annoys them. And I've asked my community this like a couple of times, actually. But the thing that really bugs me is when people say, you have to love yourself before anyone else will love you. Um, and the reason that annoys me is because I'm all about self-love and doing self-work. You know, I'm in therapy. I love that stuff. But it's this idea that one, all people in relationships love themselves completely and have got all their shit together, which is so not true. And um, the second thing is uh, like the idea that you need to fix yourself or you're only single so that you can sort out your shit. So then you make yourself more appealing to a partner um which i just find really irritating we should be practicing self-love for our own sake not to make ourselves more appealing for somebody else um that's just ridiculous and annoying um and also yeah loads of people i know don't love themselves and they're in relationships so (laughs) i just think that that's really annoying um i i so (laughs) agree and i've heard you say that before and it's really stuck with me and there is that thing of, oh, you need to work on yourself or love yourself first. And that just comes from an assumption and smugness, as you say, that people in relationships have got that down. Um, but there's also something as well that I've not- noticed since being in a fairly new relationship where there's actually a lot of work you do within the relationship as well. I guess it's just we're always doing work, like we're always growing. So that assumption that people who are single versus people in couples have more work to do, essentially. Um I think is really flawed and shows the judgment and that stigma. And that stigma sometimes means couples can come across quite smug, but actually there's nothing worse than settling or being in a relationship that you uh, shouldn't be in or don't want to be in. And I think that's actually far more damaging. And that's why it's so important for people like you to show that single life isn't what people fear it would be and it's so much better than being in the wrong relationship so I salute you (laughs) I actually honestly had a we I was sitting in the pub a few years ago my friend was having problems with a relationship um quite bad problems and a friend another friend said well at least you've got a boyfriend and I just let down her throat I was like do not say that to anyone because like one you're you're making out that being single is like the worst possible scenario like you couldn't think of anything worse than being single and two that's such an unhealthy attitude because a lot of people do need to leave relationships and if there's this idea that being single is so terrible it's going to make them feel even more nervous about you know leaving relationships that they actually really need to leave um so yeah I mean we're still really good friends but I schooled (laughs) I did feel really bad afterwards because I how dare you say that to her? Um, but I just feel really passionately that if if we if single people were more accepted and celebrated in in society, then it would make it easier for everyone, even those in relationships. So it's best for everyone, basically. That's uh, and that's uh, that's the end of my TED talk. Yeah, no, <laughs> as I said, huge fan. Thank you, appreciate it. Um, and, and, you know, we, as you said at the beginning, we both love nuance. So today we are going to talk about something that's, um, difficult about being single. Um, and let's get on to that now. So what is the story, um, that you're going to talk about with us today? So mine is like an ongoing thing, but what's changed is I used to be pretend that I was totally fine about it. And now I'm like, 
I'm not fine about it and I'm okay about talking about it. And I think it's really important to talk about it. Um, and that's the fact that I want to be a mum and I'm not a mum. Um, and I'm 37 now. So I'm past that scary age that everyone goes on about, which is 35. Um, you know, I've gone, gone shooted way past that thanks to the pandemic. Um, <laughs> and, um, and yeah, I used to pretend that it wasn't an issue. I used to never talk about it. I couldn't talk about it because if I talked about it, I would either immediately want to cry or I would just feel so embarrassed. Um, and it's partly because when you're single, um, you're supposed to sort of act like stuff doesn't bother you. Um, and it does bother me. And I think it's like really important to talk about um and I've also like done a lot of self-work <laughs> um and I've got to the stage where I'm okay with saying like this is something in my life that is uh difficult for me and we should talk about it more and I talk about it now with my friends and I can it's still I think a taboo um, it still makes people feel awkward and uncomfortable if I bring it up, but <laughs> I just keep doing it now, um, which I don't know, maybe it's annoying. No, I'm, I don't think it's annoying. I think it's just like, we need to normalize talking about these things. And yeah, so mine is like a, I guess it's like not something that happened in the past and I'm okay with now. It's kind of an ongoing one, but it's that I am okay with talking about it now. Talk to me. Yeah, sense? of course. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that realization that you wanted to be a mother and that realization that you're single. So this wasn't, this isn't straightforward. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I've literally always wanted to be a mom. Um, and I've always had people telling me that I'm really maternal. I'm really good with kids. Um, I remember being, I went to stay with a cousin in America for three months. I lived uh, on an island off the coast of Seattle um, and my cousins another cousin came out to visit with her two small children and she, we were leaving for the whole day and it was really sunny but I was like I think we need to go and get her a jacket you know just in case later on it gets cold and my my cousin who's much older than me um, you know she could be like my mum maybe not she should have to be really young but still you know she's kind of a lot older she just turned to me and she was like oh my god you're such a mum you are a mother like that's such a mother thing to think like oh she might be cold like later in the day I better run and get her a jacket she was like you're only like 20 something I think I was like 23 and she was like you're already basically a mum um and I remember being like oh my god that was like kind of shocking to me because I was like trying to travel the world I was like I didn't really have like the career of my dreams at the time I was like single and but kind of dating guy and suddenly it's like you're a nat like basically you're a natural you're going to be a great mum and I was like um and then I spent my 20s basically jumping from one disastrous relationship to another until my late 20s and I was like okay I need to just be single for a while and I was really fine with that. And then I think it was, I mean, I don't know whether it was my best friend having a baby, but even then I was like, oh, it's it's okay because I'm not ready to have a kid. So it, that, but it, I guess it's that started making me think because 
um my my sister doesn't want kids so my best friend from school I sort of see her as a sister and when she's an only child and she used to like you know just walk into our house when we were teenagers she was like I would go to like stuff with her um because she was an only child um so I kind of see her as like a sister and her daughter uh, I just love with all my heart. It's like took really took me by surprise how much I loved her, and I guess like being around her, I was kind of like, oh yeah, you know, I really hope it does happen for me kind of soon. Um, and then I I went to see a relationship coach. This is before like obviously I started writing about being single, and I went to see a relationship coach and basically had a bit of a breakdown in the office because I've been in quite traumatic relationships and I hadn't dealt with that trauma. And she basically was like, I can't help you. You need a therapist, which sounds really bad, but it was actually really, really good conversation. She was amazing and professional. But then I was like, okay, this motherhood thing is not going to happen for a while because I really want to do therapy and like process stuff. And so then it was coming out of that meeting. I was like, oh my God, this is not actually going to happen for ages. Um, I mean, I could have got into a relationship, but I really wanted to be like, sort my mind out before I even thought about um, getting into a relationship. And also, you know, you don't want to become a mum if you're literally all over the place and you're dealing with trauma and mental health issues. So then I was like, had this sort of panic um, where I was like, oh my God, this might actually not happen. And that was sort of the first sort of realisation, actually, this might not happen because I think I was in my early 30s then. Um, And then I remember that I was doing a night shift at The Guardian and uh, started like just Googling and actually came across um, people who have a child through um, solo motherhood free choice. So they use a sperm donor. And I read all these articles and I signed up to follow some people on social media. And I was like, okay, I've got a plan B. It's okay, because I can just do this. And I felt like I'm the kind of independent person, quite resourceful. I felt like, you know, this is actually something I could do. My my parents are desperate to be grandparents, so I felt like they'd be on board. And I just thought, okay, I don't have to worry about it for a while. Um, And then the pandemic hit, and I was like, literally, the the first thing I thought when I realised how serious the pandemic was, was, oh, my God, this might affect me becoming a mum um because I was 35 I'd already reached the scary age that everyone talks about um and then I was like oh my god I've got you know I read that it could take two years to get a vaccine obviously we did end up getting it sooner but it's like I realized that this thing could go on really long time and I remember a lot of my friends at the time didn't hadn't got that point yet they thought oh it's just gonna be like three months and I was like it's not gonna be three months it's gonna be like two years three years um and yeah so at the beginning of the pandemic I found it really difficult um plus there was just pictures everywhere of like happy families having this great time all cozy at home I mean obviously a lot of people were not having a great time because they had toddlers who needed entertaining and they were in flats with no gardens and it sounds like a nightmare but there was also this idea it was all the adverts like spend time together at home and it was all like 
all families doing all cute little activities at home and I was like I was actually went to stay with my parents I was living with my parents like a teenager and I was like oh my god this is not how I imagined my life to be that's a monologue and a half. No, you've written really beautifully about that feeling of losing time because of the pandemic and losing time towards parenthood. And it it's really I, I find this I find this very I get very emotional as well. Like I find it very upsetting. And I think it's a form of loss that isn't talked about enough. Um so really appreciate you talking about it. What what does it feel like to face up to that loss and that time that's lost yeah I think the hardest thing actually is kind of a weird thing well not maybe it's not that weird because if I do get to be a mum I'm sure like my my current sort of lost thing will just you know just disappear but one of my biggest things is um now almost all of my best friends who want children have had children and so my children, future imaginary children that may never exist, will never get to be little with my friend's children. And um, that makes me feel really emotional because I feel like I have lost something there because a lot of my friends, three of my best friends had children, uh, babies at the same time. They've had this incredible bonding experience where they've ha- been through the pandemic as new mums together and that that bond is going to be unbreakable and I've been on the outside of it and so is my other friend um and and then there's you know my best friend who I talked about her little girl who I kind of see as my honorary niece um she's six now so you know if I have children you know she she could be quite old by the time (laughs) the baby comes along so they're never going to be little kids together and doing those kind of cute things that you can do with your friends and and stuff but I actually had a conversation with um Genevieve Roberts I hope I've got her name wrong right (laughs) um and she is somebody who who did have uh children through a sperm donor and she said that actually she was also really emotional about the idea that yeah all her friends will have you know the kids will be never grow up together and she said, actually, it's amazing to see her friend's kids who are older doing fun things like planning dance classes for her little girl and doing really cute stuff. And she was like, it's so special. It's just a different kind of special. And I see my friend's uh, little girl playing with our other friend's kids who are much older at the beach, for example. And even though there's like, you know, quite a lot, a big age gap between them, they're so beautiful together like it's such good friends so I think that that's one thing that that I do still find really hard because that's something I'll never get so even if I do have children I will never get that experience of having them at the same time as my best friends or similar times because even if it was just like two or three years it's still kind of you're all kind of new mums at the same time so that kind of exciting period I've missed it I've missed the boat (laughs) And you talked about like, yeah, like the ambiguous grief. There's like a brilliant article that was um, in the Times. Um, it was written by a psychotherapist and she talks about this ambiguous grief. And it's something that like, I think a lot of people don't really understand. Um, but it's it's basically um, where you, you're, you've lost something that isn't like a tangible thing, like a person. 
um, it's like a, it's ambiguous <laughs> um, and it is a loss. And, um, and she, she wrote like, you know, there are no condolence cards directed at somebody who, um, who can't have a child that she dreams of or hasn't met the imagined partner that she hoped to meet. Um, and there are no like community rituals in place to support people in their grief when they've got ambiguous grief, this kind of grief. Um, you know, they don't get to take a day off work when they're heartbroken. Um, you know, we've got Mother's Day coming up in the UK. Um, I know it's different in the US. Uh, in the UK, yeah, it's this week um, when we're recording this. And, you know, that is difficult now uh, for me because it's like, and I don't just feel bad for myself. I feel bad for my mum, who would love to be a, grand, a grandmother. And yeah, there's nothing out there really. Um, apart from there now are some community groups. Um, so there's a great one called Gateway Women, um, which is run by Jodie Day. And it's, but it's, it's, it's brilliant and it's international and it's, but it's basically aimed at people who are childless, not through choice, but it's kind of aimed at people who, who are already there and they know they're not going to have children. So I feel like I'm not not part of that community yet because I haven't accepted it. <laughs> um, and actually, the funny thing is, at the beginning of the pandemic, Jodie contacted me and asked me to be on a panel. And I just ignored her email. We talked about this, as so she knows, but um, I just ignored her email. So I was like, I can't talk about it. And I was in the denial stage where I was pretending like, oh, I don't care about this. It's absolutely fine. <laughs> but actually, I didn't do it. And then later I did do one. And um, so I did, I did speak on a panel in December. Um, so I've definitely like uh, progressed. <laughs> well, before we get on to pretending to be fine and how you, did, and how you did that, how confident do you feel now that you'll have a child one day? Do you know, I still have this like gut instinct that tells me I'm going to be a mum. Um, and and I always joke like I've decided I'm I'm really fertile, which obviously is complete delusional. But <laughs> I'm always like, no, no, I've decided I'm fertile because therefore, if I think it, I will be it, which is obviously total bullshit. But uh, maybe that's the denial talking. But I don't know what it is. Like I just feel like I'm going to be a mum, and um, maybe it's delusion. Um, I am the kind of person who will. Um, you know, if I want something, I will go after it. So I have actually just signed up to, uh, there's a great community called The Stalk and I, which is for uh, single women thinking about having a child through sperm donor. So I've just signed up to their coaching group. Um, It's run by this amazing woman called Mel Johnson. Um, So I'm starting to take proactive steps. And I've also gone back on the dating apps. Um, And, and I, but I think for me, it's like, I, I want a child more than I want a partner (laughs) Um, because I've built this really great life for myself and I don't want to uh, rock the boat by bringing somebody into it, Uh, partly that, and it's partly because I had quite a lot of trauma in my previous relationships. Um, I mean, I would like to find a partner, but I also don't want it to rest, like me being a mother, resting on whether I can find someone suitable. And I just think it's so annoying that women have to think about these things and that you've got this kind of panicky feeling where you go into like 
dating situations where you're literally thinking do they want to be a parent because otherwise I'm gonna have to ditch them straight away is so uncomfortable and awkward and if I wanted a partner more maybe I would like suffer through it like that weird awkwardness but I think for me it's more like I'd rather wait and get the right partner for me than rush into something and just do it. And, you know, I've had people telling me basically to go and have like a one night stand to get pregnant. Like people give really bad advice. Um, like, so, uh, so yeah, I, I, I've started to read more about people who haven't had, haven't had children. I'm starting to read more of their thoughts because before I used to, never read any I couldn't read anything they said like I didn't want to know I didn't want to hear it um and Marianne Keyes actually wrote a really beautiful well she was interviewed she talked really beautifully about realizing that she won't be a mum and even though she's got a great life she says like sometimes her and her husband sit in like a pub and, or you know a restaurant and they'll be like it's shit isn't it and it is shit like it's okay to say it's shit um and her thing is like, you're meant to be like, oh no, it's fine because I'm going to go traveling the world and doing all these things. And she does great things. She's got a great career, uh, but she still is like, yeah, it's shit. And she thinks about her imaginary children that don't exist. And before I would never been able to read that. So I guess like part of me is starting to prepare myself for that eventuality, but I'm definitely still very much into denial, I think because I've got this really weird gut feeling that is going to happen and I don't know how or when, and maybe I will be one of those people, you know, I do collect stories of people. I've got a friend who was single until about a year ago. She's now got a great partner. She lives by the seaside and she has a baby and she's 42. So, um, so yeah, I sort of, and some people are like get annoyed at those kind of stories because the fact is it might not work out. And I think, like facing that and talking about it which therapy has helped with <laughs> it's like it's okay it, sometimes it's not going to work out um and it might not happen for me but I do think that um there's other ways that I can use those mothering kind of um qualities I guess that I have um you know there's being a great fake auntie to my friend's kids um you know I have even thought about fostering like I interviewed a single foster carer and it was um, one of the most amazing conversations and this woman was just like people think fostering is just so stressful and traumatic and she's like no one talks about how fun it can be and how great it can be um so she really made me feel like you know, there are other ways to to use your your the inner mother. <laughs> um, no, I, I fostering was always in my uh, my my backup plan as as well. So uh, I really relate to what you're saying. Conversation I had woman was amazing. Like like I had hairs on the back of my neck. Um, it was just the best. And the thing about when you say it might not work out I think what's really important to highlight and to give a bit of space to is what you said about this ambiguous grief because I think if that was to be the case and I wholeheartedly have my gut alongside yours on this one but if someone's single versus if they're in a relationship and can't have kids I don't think they do will be given the same amount of um, sympathy and space and and it be treated as a loss the same way a, a couple trying and I think that's why it's so important to talk about this because that's just not right because it's a loss for 
both parties. Yeah, and I actually, um, before the pandemic, so I'm a journalist, so sometimes what I do is when I'm not ready to talk about something, I will pitch an article and interview people and do like a reported feature on a topic that I think is important, secretly because I am experiencing it, but I don't want to talk about it. Um, And I used to do that a lot before I started writing personal essays. And I wrote an article for the iPaper about social infertility, which is this uh, term that's now used for people like me who are single, want to be a mum and haven't found, you know, the right person. And I basically asked, uh, it was actually Mel who I've just spoken about, um, you know, what she thought the differences were basically between how people, friends who have fertility issues are treated in like a friendship group or by family members versus friends who are single and want to be a mum. And she said basically exactly what I have experienced myself, which is that people who are going through fertility issues, everyone's very sensitive about it. They're totally understanding, you know, this idea that it's okay if you don't want to come to like the kid's birthday party or have, you know, scans waved in your face. Um, You know, there's this like, people now talk a lot more about infertility and you know there's all this stuff about what not to say and I think people have taken that on board and everyone's very sensitive and sympathizes a lot whereas for me and other people like me because there's a lot of people like me and we talk about it in like the Facebook group that I've got and stuff but it's it's like you're just totally discounted from the conversation because you don't actually have a medical reason or you might do but you haven't got that far yet um but you you have a totally totally different barrier which is actually quite important like not having a partner not having the crucial other element to making a baby um and yeah it's just it's just dismissed it's like oh you've got plenty of time and it's like well have I why have I got plenty of time but my friend who's trying for a baby doesn't who's actually already trying it's like a really weird thing and I think it's because people feel so uncomfortable because they know that time is running out for me and they don't want to acknowledge that talk about it so they're like oh it's fine got plenty of time um and that is another reason why people do find those stories about people getting pregnant later really annoying uh I don't because (laughs) I'm like fully on the hope train um but I can see why it would be annoying if somebody said it to me when I wasn't in the mood to hear it um but yeah it's just this idea that people who are trying for a baby and struggling to get pregnant they deserve all of our sympathy and all of our care and attention and sensitivity but those who are single who are experiencing really similar feelings they're experiencing the similar feelings when somebody announces their pregnancy they're experiencing it on mother's day they're experiencing it at christmas that's another big time when it's all like family 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 and they don't get any they're not supposed to care or they're not supposed to like you know there's just like this weird attitude well, it's, 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 really annoying. it's definitely part of the stigma we talked about at the beginning where it's almost like your fault if you're single whereas it's not someone's yeah. fault if they're trying um within a relationship so I think that's partly where that comes from yeah definitely um so talk to me a bit more about trying to bury and pretend you were totally fine with this disconnect of wanting to be a mother but having what you know that using the term social infertility yeah I think that um 
a classic example is I was kind of dating this guy um, a few a couple of years ago. It's like before the pandemic. It's like a year before the pandemic, I think. I was kind of like had this thing with a guy, and um, we were on a kind of date, and um, he he brought up kids, and I I think there's a lot of misogyny around this conversation as well um you know I see it with like lots of male friends always like oh watch out your girlfriend's gonna like get knocked up just to like tie you down basically there's even in in like when people get married it's like oh she's gonna make you have a baby straight away um and with dating there's this idea that you have to be like this cool girl who's like you know one of the lads like I do drink pints but you know there's this kind of image where kind of guys are like looking for this fun person who is basically one of the lads um and you're supposed to pretend that you don't want marriage and children like this is my experience of it and I don't know I it's the looking for someone who doesn't take themselves too seriously on the apps yes. which is an automatic no to, for me yeah you're supposed to just be really cool and like laid back um Anyway, so I'm there sitting there in this pub and he, I don't know how he brought it up, but he brought up kids and he basically almost directly asked me and I just ignored him <laughs> and I just changed the subject. I literally just changed the subject. And afterwards I was like, I should have told him because, uh, you know, if we, not that we were ever going to, because it was a really toxic situation, but you know, that's the kind of thing you should be honest about on a date because you kind of need to know. Um, and yeah, with friends, it's just like stuff would really upset me, but I plaster a big smile on my face and pretend that I didn't care. Um, and even till probably last year, I never spoke about it with some of my best friends. Uh, I went for a walk I remember last year and I brought it up for the, like with one of my closest friends uh, even then I kind of did it in a <laughs> yeah I'm just kind of a bit worried about <laughs> a little bit worried but not that worried I didn't tell her like it's actually a devastating thing which sits on my chest and makes me feel like panicky if I think about not being a mum that's how it feels it feels like someone's sitting on my chest and like squeezing the air out of me but I just said oh it's just a little bit and now I can talk about it more but but that was like you know I was 36 at the time this is someone I've known most of my life and yet I basically pretended that I didn't care about one of the things that bothers me the most in life <laughs> so it's just I, you know it's just that kind of thing where and it's partly like I think the single stigma because I talk a lot about single positivity and yet this is a part of being single like you said earlier that is actually really difficult and even in my newsletter when I first started my newsletter which I know I've talked to you about before I had quite a lot of people who were kind of like really I've still got some of them but some of them are really nice but there was a lot of people who are very like radical single they never ever want to get with anyone ever and they're like really invested in their choice and somebody messaged me being like, because I, you know, mentioned, like, I do want a partner in the future. And she emailed me being like, I'm unsubscribing because I thought this was a newsletter about single positivity, but it's clear that you want to um, find a boyfriend. Um, and it was just this really nasty email. <laughs> and I just emailed her back, actually, and said, I actually just want a baby. Uh, 
I'd rather a baby than a partner. But, <laughs> you know, some of us can't afford like to go it alone. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. It's still, that was like pretty early on, but I would never talk about it in the newsletter. It was like one of the sort of taboo subjects for me. Whereas, you know, I'd talk a lot about single positivity. I interviewed single mums, but I never really talked about how I felt about it. And then I think last year, uh, I started to open up about it and it felt so empowering because everyone messages me and goes, oh my God, that's how I feel. And it's, I love that feeling. There's nothing like it when you say something and somebody gets it and they needed you to say it to make them feel less alone. And there's studies about this, about how we need to feel like we belong. And when we've got something going on that we find we're kind of out of the group, which with so many of my friends being mums, like I do, that's another reason I feel slightly like a freak of nature. Because <laughs> one, I'm, you know, live alone, I'm single, I'm 37. I've been single for ages now, maybe nine years, kind of lost count. And, um, oh my God, I've just lost my train of thought, sorry. <laughs> I actually just listened to your Cat Brown interview. She's got ADHD, which I have too. And uh, yeah. So I just lost my train of thought. Well, you got to the point about how empowering it was to talk about. Oh, yes, right. Yeah. So when I started, I think I just briefly mentioned it in one of my emails, my newsletters, and I got a bunch of people replying. And I was like, okay, this is something that I know I need to talk about because I know it's a huge part of being single. There are lots of people out there who talk about single positivity. Quite a lot of them don't want to be parents and so they'll talk about you know getting off the dating apps and you know just embracing single life which I am all for as well but if you've got the fact that you also want to be a mum you've got that hanging over your head and a lot of people are forcing themselves to go on dating apps for example just because of this reason anyway yeah so the first time I started speaking about it it was like a huge weight had lifted off my shoulders and I was like okay and like the world hasn't caved in and people haven't like shunned me for admitting that I actually find it really difficult when my friends tell me they're having children. It's okay if you have fertility issues and you say that. It's kind of an accepted thing. Like, okay, you're going to find it really difficult when people announce their pregnancies. But I, as a single person, I'm supposed to be like the person organising the baby showers and being the fun kind of fake aunt um which I love being and I love all of my friends kids um as well so much um but yeah when I first started talking about it and admitting and also talking about in therapy as well because even at the start of therapy I didn't talk about this uh and then one day I just said and it was really uh great actually I felt so much better afterwards um and then you also find a community when you start talking about these things. Um, and another turning point was like, I have this agony aunt column with the newsletter and somebody had messaged in about the fact that they were 49 and didn't have children, not by choice. And they wanted some advice for how to deal with that loss, basically. And I avoided that question for months. I was like, there's no way I can answer that because that's my literal worst nightmare, my worst fear. Um, and then eventually I was like, I really want to answer that question because it's also like kind of giving myself advice as well. 
And so I talked a lot about the ambiguous grief and the communities out there and why we should talk about it. Like it is uncomfortable for people. People feel awkward about it. And I think because there's this stigma, like you being single is your fault because you didn't do X, Y, and Z to get a partner. I think that's another reason why people who end up with no kids because they were single feel an extra added layer of shame because there's already a shame if you want children and you can't have children for medical reasons because as a woman we're supposed to and we're supposed to be able to like push loads of babies out of our vaginas but I think if you also weren't a mother because you were single there's like yeah an extra added like you're then a spinster which is obviously like a really negative term and Although some people are trying to reclaim it actually um but yeah so I think like that's another reason why we need to talk about it more because it is a reality for a lot of people and like I said a lot of people are in the same boat as me where it might happen but we don't know and you know that's why it's like I really wanted to talk about it on this podcast as well because I have started pitching about the topic and I haven't landed a commission yet um but I have written about it in my newsletter. Um, and yeah, I wrote that feature before I was willing to sort of open up myself. <laughs> but you know, I love talking, like I love writing personal essays. So um, I think there's such power in sharing your your truth as a writer. They uh, need to commission that because it is going to get a huge amount of <laughs> readership, I'm sure, because so many people will relate to that. And again, that shame and that stigma that's related to that. And I think it's really incredible that you are again once again you led the way with the single experience now you've got a new wave that you're coming in to do you know telling a new new version of the story um and now you've sort of started that what how do you view and think about wanting to be a mother now now you've had the chance to talk about it a little bit more openly and stop pretending to be fine yeah I think that I'm more realistic about the fact that it might not work out and I've started to research and read about you know those experiences which I think even though isn't what I hope to happen I also just think stories other people's stories are so important um and yeah I still really I still feel really um strongly that it probably will happen or something will happen (laughs) And I started to like, I guess, take action. So yeah, I've signed up to this. I'm in like a Facebook group with people who were trying to have a baby through sperm donors. <laughs> and they're all way ahead of me. They've already decided. Um, and that, you know, some of them are actually mums. But I think just learning about the different things that are out there. Um, you know, I've researched like egg, egg freezing, for example. For me, I feel like I should have done that 10 years ago. And it's probably not worth it now. Um I've thought about getting a fertility check. Uh, I probably should have done that about 10 years ago as well. So, yeah, I guess I'm taking more proactive action. Um, I've talked about it a lot in therapy. I've spoken to my mum about it. Again, I avoided talking to my mum about it because I found it so uncomfortable that it was her loss too, because I really do feel that. Um, And I was quite angry with her actually for years because... uh, my sister said that she said that she'd accepted that she wasn't going to be a grandmother. This was about five years ago. And I was like, I haven't accepted it. So why is she? But I think it was just her way of like trying to deal with that loss. It is obviously 
you know, in a way, nothing to do with her, but it was also everything to do with her. So I've started talking to her about it. So I guess I just, and I've talked to friends about it. So they perhaps know a little bit more that it is actually something that's really painful for me. Because I think being honest with your friends about the things that actually are really uncomfortable is like really important for living a like happy life. Because <laughs> um, otherwise we sit in this kind of resentment and I find like keeping secrets is like really toxic for me and it just doesn't work. So yeah, being open and being honest and it is sometimes awkward. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Um, but yeah, I'm just trying to be a bit more proactive and tackle it head on instead of uh, just pretending I'm fine and not <laughs> not coping with it. Well, thank you for sharing that today. It, I know it will help lots of people to hear it about that and to hear how empowering it is to admit that this is something one might struggle with so if anyone's listening who's going through this and I'll include um, the links in the show notes for all the different organizations and communities that you mentioned as you went along so thanks Nicola no problem this is what we ask all our guests Uh, pretending to be fine is something we do on a daily basis is there a recent example of a way you've done that I have so many but I just narrowed it down this morning um, just because I recently had a message. So I'm, a, I'm freelance, um, but I work mainly for The Guardian and I do a lot of the live blogging. And I had a message the other day on Instagram being like, oh, my God, you're doing so well in your career um, because I just posted something about the live blog. And I was like, yeah, it's great. Um, but actually, <laughs> so when I first uh change careers so I used to work in the arts and then I was an English teacher abroad um I always tell the story that I googled how to be a news reporter and that's how I came across this thing called the Scott Trust Bursary which is where the Guardian pay for your MA and give you an internship um but actually what I googled was how to be a Guardian reporter and the fact that I never so this is obviously I'm talking about journalism but I think it's relevant for other people because it's when you have a dream and you don't actually achieve your dream, um, and then you pretend you're fine about it. So that's, I I never got a staff job at The Guardian. I still write for them, I still work for them a lot, but I've never had a staff job at The Guardian. And um, it's a long and painful story that I won't go into, Um, but when I I originally left The Guardian in 2018 to go to Post, I'd been a casual there for like five years, and I was basically full time. I essentially lived at the Guardian. I was just constantly doing shifts, um, and it's a it's a long story, so I won't go into it. But it essentially uh, ended with me giving the news editor, who was really nice actually, it wasn't his fault, an ultimatum. I was like, if you don't give me more shifts on the news desk, then I'm going to go to Huff Post. <laughs> I thought I was going to win. I didn't, so I ended up going to Huff Post. And I left that day, um, my dream job, essentially, the only place I ever wanted to work. Uh, And I cried in the lift on the way down. And I was a wreck. And I went to the pub um, to meet my friends. And just before I got to the pub, I bumped into two of them. And I was like a sobbing mess. So those people knew I was not totally fine. But obviously, I tidied my face up. (laughs) calm myself down and went into the pub and was just talking about how great it was that I was going to have post and what a great opportunity and I can't wait for a new challenge all this total bullshit um 
and then on the men on the, actually the next day I went to a yoga class and I was just crying my eyes out in the yoga class the woman had to go and get loads of blankets for me <laughs> there was like people doing pretzel kind of things next to me it was like a really intense yoga class and I was just lying with bolsters and pillows sobbing um <laughs> and then I started at Huff Post on the Monday and literally it was like yeah it's great I'm fine and even though I've gone freelance and I've ended up working for the Guardian again which I you know I love I've still got this like thing where it's like this isn't this isn't what was supposed to happen this isn't like my dream didn't actually happen and it's probably not going to happen because now I've moved away from London um and yeah it's just this idea that like you have to almost do like a PR job of your own life and so this girl's like saying how great it was I was like yeah it's great (laughs) it's like it's not really because it's not what I wanted um but also then I'm kind of letting go of that dream because I'm leaning more into being a writer so then it's also kind of a healthy thing as well um, and realizing that, yeah, you you might not get your dream, um, and that's okay. But I think I should have just said it to this girl, like, well, it's not really exactly what I want to be doing. <laughs> but I didn't because you've kind of got this weird thing where you pretend everything's, especially with your career, because there's that idea of like portraying this idea of success, and you're not supposed to talk about like how things actually didn't go right. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's my recent example, I guess. When it comes to career in particular, we have to spin our own pasts and path as though it was all part of our grand plan and it was all in our control. But thank you so much for coming on today. Really appreciate the conversation and we will chat again very, very soon, I'm sure. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you for listening to Totally Fine with Tiffany Philippou. Hosted by me, Tiffany Philippou. Anna Codrirado is the executive producer. Editing and mixing is by Chris Bannister. And you may recognise us because we've also got another show called Is This Working? So you can check that out too. And if you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast app. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review as that really helps more people find the show too. Thank you.